1: Welcome to the Pastor's Study. Have you ever wondered, why is it at work or at school, you can talk about Abraham Lincoln or Charles Darwin or even Buddha or Mohammed, but you bring up the name of Jesus, people get nervous. The question for this half hour is, why are people uncomfortable with the name of Jesus? Would you take out your Bible Turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts chapter four, and let's talk about that question. Let's pray first. Father, we as we open the scriptures now, we pray that you open our ears, our hearts, open my mouth, and Lord, speak to us now about the name of Jesus, and it is in that name by which we pray, amen. Let me set this up first. Peter and John had just healed a man crippled from birth. It's a big miracle. It draws a big crowd. The apostles used this crowd opportunity to start preaching Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Well, the the Jewish leaders hear about this, but they become angry at the apostles, throw them in jail. The apostles are in jail overnight. The next morning, they're on trial, and the Jewish leaders said, how did you heal that man? And Peter says it was by the power of Jesus Christ that this man was healed and there's salvation in no one but Jesus. Now we get to our text. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 13. Now as they, the Jewish leaders, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Here's the first lesson. Jesus is more important than education. Peter and John were untrained men. All they could do was fish, but because they had been with Jesus, they did amazing things. We are told today, the cure for almost everything is education. And if we have more education, we'll have less teen pregnancy, less drug abuse, less juvenile delinquency. The cure for everything in our culture is education. (laughs) Well, you know what I heard someone say once? You know what you get when you educate a criminal? An educated criminal. (laughs) Education cannot transform the human heart. Only Jesus can do that. And the Jewish leaders, it says, they recognized those men spent time with Jesus. I'll tell you the parents that I kind of want to shake are the parents that will run all over town to get Jimmy to hockey lessons and Susie to ballet lessons. But, you know, Pastor, we just... It's hard for us to be in church every Sunday. (laughs) No, mom and dad, the most important thing you can do for your children is give them Jesus. Grandma and grandpa, the most important thing you can do for your grandkids is to give them Jesus because only Jesus can transform the human heart. He's much more important than higher education. And I will tell you, higher education sometimes does more damage than good. Lots of people in our universities are hostile to the Christian faith. I wish I could go back to my freshman year of college at the University of Texas. We had an a, a English professor, teacher, who every, weekly in class, he, he ridiculed the Christian faith. God forgive me, I was too scared. Today, I would go back up and put up my hand, excuse me, sir, we paid money to learn English here, not your opinion of Jesus Christ. Augustus Toplady, was a preacher in England in the 1700s. He wrote the famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. He was raised in the Church of England, but was not converted until he was 16 years old, sitting in a church meeting in a barn in Ireland, listening to a preacher who was illiterate. And he writes this, By the grace of God under that sermon, I was brought near by the blood of Christ in August 1756. Strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, should be brought near to God in a barn in Ireland under the ministry of one who could barely spell his name. The excellency of such power must be of God and cannot be of man. In other words, if you think you need some Bible degree before God can use you, think again what transformed Peter and John is. Not that their education, again, they could fish and that was about it, but they had spent time with Jesus. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they, the Jewish leaders, had nothing to say in reply." Here's the next lesson. You can't argue with a changed life. I mean, this blind man from birth is now healed. End of argument. Jesus is alive and doing miracles. I mean, uh, what do you say to, to this blind man? What do you say to the Apostle Paul, who started out as a Christ-hater and became the great Apostle of the Church. What do you say about St. Augustine in the 300s, who was an immoral man, became one of the greatest teachers in the history of the Church? What do you say to uh, John Newton, slave trader, slave owner, who got, gets converted, ends up being a pastor, writes Amazing Grace. What do you say about Charles Coulson, who said, I would walk over my grandmother to get Richard Nixon reelected," becomes born again, spends the rest of his life ministering to prisoners in prison. Now you could say, well, this was all mass hallucination. But maybe Jesus rose from the dead and is changing lives today. I remember my pastor that I grew up under in Omaha, he would say, you can't argue with a changed life. Verse 15, but when they, the Jewish leaders, ordered the apostles to leave the council, they begin to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Next lesson. No amount of evidence will convince a hard heart. These Jewish leaders had the evidence standing in front of them, breathing and seeing, and they still say, we're not going to believe this. Years ago, I read John Stott, who was an English preacher, a very, very intelligent man, said that a man, young man came into my office and he said, Dr. Stott, I've been a member of your church, but I've been to university and I just want you to know I won't be coming to church anymore. Well, why is that? Well, I don't think Christianity is intellectually feasible. So John Stott started giving him some of the evidence for the Christian faith. And at the end of every piece of evidence, the young man, no, there's got to be another explanation, no, no, no. Finally, John Stott, who really was brilliant and could do this kind of thing, said to him, well, let me ask you something. If I could prove to you, beyond the shadow of a reasonable doubt, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, would you believe in him? And the young man said, no. And John Stott said, your problem is not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of your will. I think most of the people in the world, that young man, the Jewish leaders who had the evidence right in front of them the problem is not that Christianity is intellectually infeasible. They don't want to submit to Jesus' authority. That's the issue going on. Not the intellect, the will. Look at verse 17 but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them, the apostles, to speak no longer to any man in this name. Here's the next lesson. The name of Jesus makes people uncomfortable. One of the best books I ever read was C.S. Lewis's, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes, do you want to know how to wreck a fancy dinner party? While you're seated around that table, when there's a lull in the conversation, bring up the name Jesus and watch people get nervous and change the subject. (laughs) Why is it that people get nervous? I mean, here was a little girl in Alabama who at school bowed her head to pray and people got upset and told her that she couldn't do that anymore. What? (laughs) Why is it that the name of Jesus makes people uncomfortable? I think deep down people know he's real and they don't want to submit. It's a will issue, it's not an intellectual thing. Look at verse 18. And when they, the chief priests, had summoned the apostles, they commanded them to speak no more or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Here's the next lesson. Obey God, not man. In the next chapter, the apostles are going to say the same thing to the same Jewish leaders. Quote, we must obey God rather than men. So let's ask a question here aren't Christians supposed to obey the law? Obey the authorities. These Jewish leaders were the authorities. Well, if you read Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, who was always in trouble with the law, teaches us that God has instituted government, even pagan government, to keep order in society, to punish evildoers. Paul the Apostle said, overwhelmingly, yes, we are to submit to the authorities, to the government, even pagan government, because it keeps order. But then comes along Acts chapter four and five that teach, there are exceptions. When the law of man clearly contradicts the law of God, the law of God wins. For instance, let's say you're a Nazi soldier in 1945 and the General tells you to put the Jews in a shower room and turn on the gas. Do you obey that? Let's say you're a Christian today and you know that helping blockade an abortion clinic is going to save babies that day. Do you disobey the government? Let's say you're a Christian wife and your husband is trying to get you to do something immoral. Do you submit to that? Well, I think the answer is overwhelmingly we submit to the authorities God has placed in our life, but There are exceptions. When your authority tells you to do something immoral, you say no to the authority and you say yes to God. That's what the apostles are doing here. Let's look at verse 21. When the... Jewish leaders had threatened the apostles further. They let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were glorifying God for what had happened. For the man who was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed, the people started glorifying God because of what the apostles did. Here's the next lesson. The Christian's goal in life is to glorify God. The reason you're on the planet is to glorify God and not to care what the authorities think. There's a story of a violinist who was on stage, a young man and he got up and he, he gave his first number and it was powerful. People applauded loudly, but you could tell by the look on his face that he was not pleased. He, he does a second number, again, perfect job, people applauded. Again, he's not pleased. He does his third and final number, and it was so good. People jumped to their feet, a loud standing ovation. And then the young man looked up in the balcony and he saw an old white haired man nod and joy burst on his face. <laughs> the young man didn't care about the approval of the crowd. He wanted the nod of his maestro. And, and I will tell you that our goal in life, Christians, is not to get the approval of the crowd. Our goal is to get the nod of the maestro. I will tell you I have been, if you go to my website pastorstudy.org, and if you punch in the button upper left of Facebook, you'll see articles that I write about current events. I've been taking a lot of heat lately because There was a Lutheran, liberal Lutheran pastor who wrote an article saying, isn't it great that John and Tony are reunited in heaven again? And he talks, John died of AIDS, and then later his lover Tony died, and isn't it wonderful they're reunited? And I wrote an article saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. First Corinthians 6 says adulterers, idolaters, fornicators, homosexuals don't go to heaven. What do you mean they're reunited in heaven? And oh, did people get mad at me. One liberal ELCA pastor wrote, uh, wrote an article against me, calling me a name I can't say on the air, and he's a Lutheran pastor, but he's the same Lutheran pastor who said that if Jesus wasn't single, Jesus was in a same-sex relationship with the apostle John. And so I've been taking some heat lately, but you know what? My job is not to look and see what the crowd thinks of me. My job is to keep my eyes on the balcony and to get the nod of our maestro. That's our job. Let's look at our last verse, verse 23. When the apostles had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said and done with them. Last lesson. Let the church be your shelter. The apostles get beat up by the world and where do they run once they're let go? To the church, to their Christian friends, let the church be your shelter. I remember years ago, I was part of a, I worked at a Christian university, and some of the professors were poo-pooing this view that the church should be your place of comfort. We, we have too many comfortable, you know, we should. And one recovering alcoholic professor said, wait a minute, you don't know the demons I fight. I love to go to church. It's my refuge. It's my safe place in the storm. Don't try to take that away from me. <laughs> Do you have a, a refuge? Do you have a church? Do you go to the church regularly? Is it your refuge from the storm? Way back in 250 AD, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, wrote this to his friend Donatus. It is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have discovered a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them." So this is an incredibly awful world. Do you have a shelter? Do you have a church you go to every week? I, I, I met a couple who said to me, Pastor Brock, we used to watch your TV show and we didn't go to church and you kept saying you've got to find a church and now we're going to church every week. <laughs> Listen, you need to do that. This is an evil world. You need a church to be your shelter. So, so what's the answer to the question? Why is the world uncomfortable with the name of Jesus? It's not because he isn't real. It's not because the evidence isn't everywhere if you open your eyes. People just don't wanna bow the knee to him. That's the issue, amen.
2: Welcome to the portion of the pastor study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord and our everyday walk with him. Pastor Brock, since you're talking about finding a good church,
1: how does one go about finding a mm-hmm. good church? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this many times. Jackie, let's do it one more time. How do I know? Of, uh, there are wonderful Lutheran churches, and there are horrible Lutheran churches. Same with Presbyterians, Baptists, etc., etc. What you do to find out whether the pastor of that church is a liberal, it's very easy. As you're shaking hands, I just say, can I ask you just a few questions, Pastor, when you're done? when he's done shaking hands, here's the questions you ask. Pastor, I'm looking for a church, I'm just curious. Does this church teach that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you believe there's a heaven and a hell? Do you believe in the miracles of the Bible, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he feeds the five thousand? Do you believe that kind of thing? Tell me your views on abortion, homosexuality. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you get good, clear answers, that's a good church. If you get That's complex. Christians differ on, then you want a different church. Okay.
2: What are some of the churches that people should stay away from?
1: Okay. First of all, stay away from the cults. These are groups that say they're Christian, but they are not. They are the Unitarian Church, the Unity Church, the Jehovah's Witness Church, the Mormon Church, Latter-day Saints, uh, the Christian Science Cult, you stay away from, and then the New Age churches that that's kind of, you know, there are churches that are kind of New Age the Unity Church and others that say they're Christians. Those are the ones to avoid. Over here are, Christ- are churches which used to be Christian, and some of them still are, but overwhelmingly they've gone heretical. That would be the United Church of Christ. Uh, sadly, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, of which we used to be a part, has become quite heretical. I'm not saying there aren't Christian pastors and churches in that denomination, but watch out. You've got to look carefully. You also have to be careful with the Episcopal Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, and the United Methodist Church. Uh, again, Jackie, there are churches in those denominations that are good, but you've got to be very careful. Better yet, join a different branch of that church. Instead of ELCA Lutheran, join the Missouri Synod Lutherans. Instead of the Presbyterian Church USA, join the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA. Uh, the, instead of the uh, Episcopal Church, join the Anglican Church. There are good breakaway groups from those once good denominations.
2: It's kind of sad when you see churches fall away, though. It's tragic. It's why it's happening is that it's our fault, not god's
1: fault <laughs> it's not, it's like god is it's like america has turned upside down you know with with what's happened to america with gay marriage now jackie abortion everywhere hardcore pornography being produced all over the world in southern california and it's like the world has turned upside down and to see the churches support some of these things is crazy
2: okay well then do you think that higher education has destroyed christianity it, you know
1: uh, you send your kids to the University of Minnesota, uh, our higher education, overwhelmingly, those professors are liberal and not very friendly to the Christian faith. I think that's pretty, f- overwhelmingly, they're very liberal in higher education. So sometimes it does more harm than good to send your kids to college.
2: Would you say that the public schools are a, a threat to our children? You know,
1: it, it just depends. There are good public schools, and then there are public schools that are trying to teach Kindergartners about transsexuals. Give me a break. That's happening in some parts of the country.
2: Um, I guess what colleges would you recommend people mm-hmm. if they've got children yeah. that are getting close to where they have to start I, looking I, at colleges?
1: I, you know, I'm just gonna. I don't know colleges around the country. Let's just. You know, I know this is seen all over the country. Let's just do Minnesota or Minneapolis. I'm a Lutheran. I would send no one to our Lutheran ELCA schools of Augsburg, Gustavus Adolphus, St. Olaf, um, uh, Concordia-Moorhead. I wouldn't send anybody there. I might send someone to Concordia-St. Paul, which is Missouri Synod Lutheran and more biblical. But Jackie, I I would maybe send someone. Uh, Actually the the college I like the best in the Twin Cities is uh, University of Northwestern because they're very biblical. I went to Bethel University. It's a Baptist school. It's more biblical than these liberal ELCA Lutheran churches. I would I would have qualms about sending someone to my alma mater. Bethel was so good for me. It's a Baptist school, but it's become liberal, more liberal these days. So you just got to be careful.
2: I guess then what advice should a parent give to a child uh-huh. going off to college that's yeah. maybe been raised in a good yeah. Christian home and had this and now is going off to school?
1: You know, I I went, for a while in college, I went to the very pagan Grinnell College in Iowa, which is kind of like McAllister McAllister or Carleton in uh, Northfield. Very intellectual schools that are not really very open to the Christian faith. Um, My faith, Jackie, was stronger at Grinnell than it was when I transferred to Christian Bethel because you had to fight for your faith at Grinnell we met for fellowship in my in my room five times a week at Grinnell and I didn't do that when I went to battle. So I would say to your kid as he's going off to school, find some good Christian, whether you go to a pagan school or a Christian school, join some Campus Crusade for Christ or InterVarsity Bible study. Just make sure you're part of some solid Christian Bible study during college. That saved my life in college.
2: Why do you think the colleges have changed though, even the ones that supposedly have religious affiliation.
1: Yeah. Well, every year, um, Princeton comes out with its 10 Most Godless Colleges list. You know what, off, what college is often near the top? McAllister and St. Paul. And Beth, and my Grinnell College has made it too. <laughs> McAllister started out and still has some roots in the Presbyterian Church. How did it become so wacko liberal? Well. Um, I'm going to point to back in the 1920s and 30s, liberal German theology came over to America because we'd go over there to be trained and come back. And and the liberal German theology teaches that the Bible is not the word of God. It's got mistakes and errors. And well, once anything goes, anything goes. And now you've got the mess we've got.
2: Um, Obey God rather than man,
1: you said. Mm -hmm.
2: How does this apply to America today?
1: Well, I think today, if we obey God rather than man, let me give you, the question is, okay, my lesbian niece wants me to go to her wedding. Do I go? I think the answer is no. And people say, but that's not loving. Yes, it is. It's not loving to go. That's what's not loving. I would would call her or sit down with her and write her a note. Thank you for the invite. I want you to know I'm concerned because the Bible says homosexual behavior is wrong. So I cannot attend your wedding because I don't believe it is a wedding and I don't wanna hurt you by supporting something that God says will hurt you eternally. You do it lovingly and kindly, the person still might get madder than a hornet, but we gotta obey God rather than man.
2: And Pastor Brock, you know, we've talked about education and that too, and but liberal things. Abortion has become a means of birth control.
1: Oh, it sure has. Yep, and we have liberal politicians to thank for that, and we have Christians who vote these people into office against their personal beliefs. We have them to thank for that too.
2: How does a person know what the stand
1: is? Yeah, I mean, here in the state of Minnesota, you've got the Minnesota Family Council. And you call them, and you say, can you send me your voter's guide? They'll tell you where all the candidates stand on these issues. You know, all over the country, there's probably other groups that do the same. Or the National Right to Life, you can get their their, uh, mail out. But for Christians to vote for people who are in favor of abortion on demand, I don't get it. Or maybe I do. They're voting for them because they think that's good for their pocketbook, and they're not voting their Christian values.
2: Pastor Brock, maybe we should just end today's
1: program with praying for the United States. Yeah, let's do Everybody bow your heads, if you would, and let's just pray. God the Father, we would pray that you would give us godly legislators, godly presidents, Supreme Court, Congress, Senate. Lord, we would pray for miracles in America. Somehow, Lord, bring this nation back to you. And may we repent of what we've done. Lord, it's going to take a miracle because it, it doesn't look like we're going in that direction. Raise up prophets, raise up people to speak your truth, even in the liberal media, somehow get your truth through. But we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for watching the pastor study.